staying in here. If you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 uh, is where we will be today. And we are getting close uh, to wrapping up the series we've been doing, looking at this idea of revival. And you'll notice that this idea of revival is the title of today's sermon, Revival. We've been going through and looking at 2 Chronicles 7.14. 2 Chronicles 7.14, which I hope by now you've maybe memorized it or at least you know at least what it says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And we've been going through this piece by piece, focusing each week on a different aspect of what God calls people to do when they want Him to revive them, to take them from where they're at into a closer presence and into a, uh, a more real seeing of Him moving again. This is when Solomon had finished the temple, and the people, uh, he's telling the people that, hey, if you follow like David did, we'll, I'll be with you, I'll bless you, but if the people turn away from me, if the people stray from me, If you will do these things, I will return you, because you will face punishment for disobedience, but I will return you. And so, as we are not Israel and as we are not them, we can still look at this as a way to see, if we are not seeing God move as He once did, what do we need to do to seek His his face, to seek His action and presence again? So the first one was if. It has to be an I will We have to seek God's face. We have to commit to doing that. We have to humble ourselves. We have to pray. We have to seek His face and turn from wickedness. The last part is where we're at today. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. What does this look like as we go through? What does this look like in the life of the church uh, when when we're faithful to following God? And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to be in Ezekiel 37 in in, in just a few moments. Ezekiel chapter 37. You can turn there. It'll also be on the screen. What does it look like when God does what he promises to do? Verses 1 through 14 in Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then I prophesied as I was commanded and I was as I was prophesying there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he, com- as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, 
a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They said, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you. You will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. We recognize that you are the sovereign Lord, the one who is in control of all things and can do all things. God, I pray that as we look at this passage, as we look at what your word says to us today, that we would be faithful in applying it to our lives. We would be faithful in seeking you and seeking what you do for your glory. I pray that you will help us to recognize what you've already done for us, and from that place, that we would be obedient people seeking after you with nothing holding us back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this passage, I want to make sure that we first kind of do what sometimes we don't do till the end. And we're going to look at what does this passage mean. The reason is I don't want to conflate two things here. Uh, sometimes passages in Scripture can be applied in a specific situation that is a part of what is there, but it is not the full meaning of the Scripture. I don't want what we get into to be thought of as the full meaning of the Scripture. So we're going to look at what it means first. For example, if you were looking at the, uh, the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan, depending on who you are, you might be realizing, I need to be more aware of what's going on and not pass up opportunities. You might be like the Pharisee that's looking, whoever you are, you'll see different applications. The meaning is always the same. So we're going to look at the meaning before we get into our application that we're going to look at. So in this passage, the people of Israel are in exile. They have been scattered, facing punishment for their past disobedience. They have had the kings of Israel that have come in, David, Solomon, the ones after. They don't follow the Lord. They don't obey him. They follow other gods. And so he brings calamity upon Israel as he told them that he would. And they have become far from God. And they're, in fact, they're in the very situation that God is talking to Solomon about when he says what he says in 2 Chronicles 7. If you disobey, if my people disobey, they will face punishment. But if they will turn, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, that is where they're at. The people are far from God. They are scattered. But God, in prophesying and giving Ezekiel this prophecy to tell the people promises to restore them, to raise them from their graves. Now, when we look at this, it's easy to look at this as a promise simply to renew the kingdom, to renew what they have experienced before, to bring back the king, bring them back into the land. And we do see that happen with Nehemiah. We see the walls rebuilt. We see the people go home, the Babylonian exile come to some sort of an ending. Is that the fulfillment of this? I don't believe it is. Most, most scholars would disagree. Even the people of Israel did not seem to think it was what that meant. The promise of resurrection from the dead, that I will bring you from your graves, is a very significant 
point of theology among the Jewish people. If you remember, the, re- the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, and the Sadducees did not, and that's why they were sad, you see. This, I believe, is a big part of where that idea comes from, that there will be a resurrection, that God is going to raise the Jewish people from their graves and bring them to the promised land, a fulfillment of his promises, to bring them into a promised land, to give them new life, to breathe his spirit into them. And so we have not seen that happen. That did not happen when Nehemiah went back in. That did not happen when the nation of Israel was reinstated after World War II, although some had looked at it in that way. No, this passage speaks about much more than that. This is a prophecy and an establishment of God's plan of resurrection that is fulfilled ultimately through the work of Christ that we have still not seen the result of. This passage points to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises through Jesus Christ. God is reiterating his promises and covenants to Israel by promising to raise them from death to life and to lead them into the promised land. It's not simply a return to the way things were before exile. This is pointing to God's ultimate plan of redemption for his people, that they will not be abandoned to death. They will be resurrected. They will have the Spirit of God. They will have a promised land, and they will know that the Lord has done it. But we have a a greater understanding, I think, than even Ezekiel had at this point, because we see the partial fulfillment of this, and we see the expanded vision of what is to happen. It does not go into details in this passage about God's grafting in of the Gentiles, but we know that's what's happening. That not only is God raising to life the people of Israel, but all the people who would come to faith through Jesus Christ. And we see this fulfillment and more in the work of Christ. In Christ, Jesus, who refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is what God referred to Ezekiel as, is our living hope. He is the one who speaks life into the dry bones of the dead because of their sin. Ephesians 2 talks about how we are dead in our sin, children of wrath, unable to do anything, but we are made alive through Christ, the same way that God promises to bring dry bones to life. Well, what comes after that for the believer? Death is not the end, but is gain for the believer. Our hope is that we will be raised in the last day because of Christ. Do you see this parallel that Ezekiel is saying, dry bones come to life. God promises to bring people out of their graves into a promised land. We have been promised through Christ to have a resurrection from the dead because of our faith in Christ. Our hope is that we'll be raised in Christ on the last day. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. The holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down from heaven, and God's dwelling place will be with man. He will wipe every tear away from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He's going to bring us from death to life. There will be a resurrection, and we will dwell with God in New Jerusalem forever. And we will know that he has done it. What Ezekiel is prophesying about in this passage is the same thing John prophesied about in Revelation, that there will be a resurrection, there will be a new Jerusalem, there will be a promised land where his people will dwell with him. Now, Ezekiel didn't realize that it would be a couple hundred years after this that Jesus would come and be the, the partial fulfillment of this, and there would be a, an expansion of this prophecy. But this is what we're looking at. The people, the faithful people of Israel and those grafted in through Christ will dwell with God, and we will know that he has done it. 
But as we look at this, as we look at this idea of what it leads to revival, what is it that God does that leads to life where life is not? What is present in that? When God moves in significant and meaningful ways, what do we see from this passage that we can apply to our situation and to our lives individually and as a church today? Well, we need to look again at what happens. First, the Lord leads Ezekiel to a valley full of bones. The hand of the Lord was with me, brought me out by the Spirit into the middle of valley. It was full of bones. And he noticed that the bones were very dry. Not only is this valley full of death, but it is death that has been there for a while. What hope do dry bones have of coming to life again on their own? I don't know about you, but there's been times where I've gone to a funeral and, and, and we've we do a very good, the people that, that do that work do a very good job of preserving and, and making people in, the, in their final moment, looking as they look the best they can in that situation. And there's been a moment in my life where it's like, it's almost as though they could just open their eyes. That's not the situation Ezekiel's in. This is a valley of dry bones. And the Lord asks Ezekiel a question. Son of man, can these bones live? How strange would it be for anyone else to ask that question? If we were to walk into a graveyard together, can, can these graves be opened and these people walk out? Can, can you do this? Can I do this? The answer would clearly be no. We cannot do those things. But Ezekiel has a good response. He says, I, and he said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And I want to point out that God is referred to as Sovereign Lord. Sovereign means he is in control of all things. He is in charge. So then the Lord commanded him to prophesy to these bones, to tell them to, that they're going to come to life. And so Ezekiel obeyed. He prophesied as he was commanded. And as he was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Tendons of flesh appeared, and skin covered them, just as God said would happen. But there was something missing. There was no breath in them. And Ezekiel is told to then prophesy again to the breath. And so Ezekiel obeys. And as he prophesied, breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. They came to life. So, what do we learn from this? What can we apply if we want to see revival? If we want to see that which appears to be dead come to life? Because we know that God can do these things. The first is we need to seek the will of the Lord. We need to be aware of the will of the Lord. Revival must first and foremost be the will of the Lord. We cannot manufacture the movement of God. One of the strangest things, and I actually knew someone that did it, still seems strange to me, is taxidermy. This idea that we will take something that, I didn't realize at first that like things that were on the wall were actually the living animal at one point. And I also didn't realize how much of that was not the real animal. There's very little that's actually the animal that's there. It's not the real thing. Even though it looks real, it's not the real thing. You know, I, I intentionally today um, wore this watch I haven't worn in a long time. Um, for some reason, when I was in high school and we went to New York, I thought it would be really cool to get a fake Rolex. Because you can get those for like 20 bucks if you go to the right parts in New York. Now, this one's a pretty convincing one. It's got the sweeping hand motion. And it, I, have, I have like five watches that are kind of, you know, the, 
fancier style, like a couple of her fossil watches. This is the only one that still works. Because it's the kind that you, you move it and it works. It's got the whole like, automatic motion thing going with it. It doesn't have a real battery. It's the automatic motion. Um, it's got officially certified written on it. It's got some, some holographic seal on the back of it. But you know what? It's not real. Despite its best attempts, the people's best attempts to make this a real Rolex, it's not one. It's pretty much worthless. We cannot manufacture the movement of God. No matter how hard we try, no matter how cunning we may be, no matter how much we may work and how much effort we may put forth, if we are working on our own power, with our own might, outside of the Lord's will, seeking to do it because of our intentions and our desires, we cannot manufacture the movement of God. Ezekiel could have walked into that valley, put those bones together. He could have put a convincing facade on them, made them look real. And even to the point that they stood up, he still couldn't put the breath in them without God's instruction. We cannot manufacture the movement of God. It must be God's will. But we do know from Scripture that God desires to move among his people. That's why he said what he said in Second Chronicles. Because he wants his people to return to him. He wants to raise his people to life. Jesus came because he loved us. Because of God's love for us, we've been made alive. And so God wants to move among his people. He wants people to come from death to life, to respond to the gospel. The, the Bible says in Second Peter, that's why he is slow in coming, because he desires that all might come to salvation. And he gives us the Holy Spirit for this purpose, to know his will and to be able to carry out his will. Everything God has done has been for the constant and, and continued presence of him among his people in the expansion of his kingdom. Jesus said it would be better that he would leave, that the Spirit would come, so that his people would have guidance directly from God. So God does desire, it is his will to see revival among churches. It is his will to see people who are believers that are not following him as faithfully as they once did to be faithful, for them to do the things that he's calling them to do. So if we want to apply this, we must be in tune with the will of God. What does God desire? I want you to, to, to think about whether you know a good, solid, confident answer to these questions. What does God desire? What does he desire of you? What does he desire of this church? What is God doing right now? What does he want you to do? What does he want our church to do? We have to know God better so that we will better know the answers to these questions. Because when we know the will of God, we are able to obey the will of God. And for revival to happen, all it takes is the faithfulness of a few. The faithfulness of a few. The, the vast majority of the Israelites were saying the things that, that God said at the end. They say that our bones are dried out, our hope is gone, we are cut off. For most people, they have given up hope. But because of the faithfulness of a few, God still worked among his people. What is the whole, what is the whole inciting incident in this passage? God's will is to show Ezekiel something. But what else is right there beside that? 
Ezekiel obeyed. It says that the hand of the Lord was upon me. What, what does that mean? It means that he is in tune with God's will and he is listening to him and obeying him and is sensitive to God's direction. And as he goes and, and God speaks to him, what does he do? He obeys him each and every time. You see, at this time, there weren't a lot of people following the Lord. We see that time and time again. When Elijah was facing the prophets of Baal, how many stood with him? None. He was alone. But in turn, when the few followed the Lord faithfully, others followed as well. Ezekiel was a prophet of the Lord, seeking him and faithfully following him and doing his will. And so for us today, revival is recognized when the masses arrive, but it begins with a faithful few seeking God. Now here's the challenge. As we sit here today in your life and in the life of our church, the challenge is, is to be, well, I wonder who those few will be. But we must be the people who would say, I don't care if no one else will obey God, I will. I don't care if no one else will obey God, I will. When, when Isaiah is, is before God says, who will I send? Send me, I'll go. I'll be the one, God. I will, be follow, I will follow you and I will be faithful. I want to do your will. Because when that happens, others will follow. And it's not till the masses arrive that people recognize revival, but it started in the hearts of those that were faithful. And as we do this, if you're going to be a person who is one of the faithful few, you must have confidence in the face of the impossible. The Lord leads Ezekiel to this valley full of bones that were very dry. And he asked him a question. Can these bones live? Now, I don't know about you or what place you're at in your life or what things you're facing or what things you have faced, but God can do all things. There is not a single thing that is beyond God's ability if he so wills. And so when Ezekiel, who knows this very well, is standing before a valley of dry bones, he says, you alone know, Lord, because he knows that if the Lord wills it, it will be done. And so when you look at your life, when you look at the life of this church, when you look at any situation you face, is that the attitude you have? If the Lord wills it, it will be done. If the Lord wills it, it will be done. And are you pursuing his will over your own desires of what he will do in those situations? You see, there's a lot of... Uh, Mike had a, a fantastic sermon when I was gone not too long ago about excuses. There's a lot of excuses we could make. And those excuses are like those dry bones. I tell you what, there's not a better excuse then I am a pile of dry bones. What am I supposed to do for God? But he made them live. And so it doesn't matter what excuse you may think you have, what thing you may think could prevent you from serving God, could prevent you from being of use to God. Health, age, ability, knowledge, whatever it might be, God can and will use you if you'll seek him and obey. We have to have confidence that God can do all things. We have to believe that God can work in an otherwise impossible situation. How else would we be justified before God unless God had intervened? God will continue to intervene 
for his glory among his people. And so when this happens, when he believes and when he obeys him, we see the spirit-filled army. God provides the spirit in direction of the army. He raised them to life. We see at this point that there is a... So if we remember this story, right? Valley of dry bones, prophesies to them, the bone to bone, flesh to flesh, there's still no life. Prophesy of the breath. The breath, the Spirit of the Lord comes and fills the people, and they are alive. I think one of the challenges we face with, with revival is not following through till the end. Some people struggle with that. I, I do at times. Struggling with following through till the end. Sometimes I'll do enough of a project, just enough of a project to annoy my wife, to annoy Jada. That I will start a project. I'll get it done. You know, the, the main parts are finished, but, you know, just putting that last coat of paint on, just doing that last little thing that ties it up. For some reason, sometimes that's hard. I don't know. But it seems among God's people, oftentimes it's hard for all people. Because could you imagine if you stood among a valley of dry bones and God said to do that and you hear a rattle? Praise God, these bones are moving. And then they come together and then there's flesh appears. Praise God, this is happening. But at the end of that, there was no breath. Imagine at that point, Ezekiel stops obeying. You don't see the end result. You don't see what God is doing fully. He's faithful to the end. And so when we see God begin to move among us, we can't become complacent. We can't rest on that. We have to realize that God is raising up a spirit-filled army, not rattling bones, not bones that have flesh on them, but an army that is filled with the life and spirit that comes from the Lord. To be faithful to Him, to do what He calls us to do, and to not simply have seen something He's done. It's the work of the Lord that we're seeking. A revived people are alive and serving God, very clearly different than they were before. And so as we, as we think about this, my hope, my desire is for revival. I want us to see revival. I want to see it in my life. I want to grow closer to God. I want a year from now to look back and, and be saddened by how, far, how little distance I had come before that point. I want, I want to constantly be renewed. I want our church to experience revival, to see God move in this church in ways that I know He has before and that I know that He can again. Because there's a pattern of revival in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see this over and over again, where the people stray. A prophet who's faithful to God comes and does the will of the Lord, and he restores his people. They repent, and they forget again, and God consistently revives his people. And that's why in the psalm it says, Lord, revive us again. Because they know that God has done it, and they know that he will again. We see this in the church, since the New Testament, we see how God continually revives the church. There's been movements, revivals, even the darkest moments of Christian history. There's always been some remnant, some group, some people that were faithful to help restore what God is doing. We see consistent revival, awakening movements. A recent one that you're familiar with whether or not, whether or not it, you, you're familiar with it in name 
or the results of it, you're definitely familiar with the results of it, is what they've called the evangelical boom of the 30s and 50s, or 30s through the 50s. And the, probably the most prominent person out of this would be Billy Graham. I don't know if you know this about Billy Graham. He didn't always start the way he finished. It's kind of how we all are, right? We don't always start the way we finish. In, in, a, in this book that I was looking at, dealing with the stories of revival, talks about how when Graham was in a position at a college and he was going to speak at this college briefing conference, at this point, this is before his evangelism crusades, he's, he's around 30 years old, and he's struggling. He is, call, he is questioning God. He's questioning the Bible. This would have been the time period when a lot of modern science began to start to conflict and people's general ideas started to seemingly conflict with the Bible and people, the, the biblical scholarship began to become more liberal. I don't know if you knew this, but Harvard and Princeton, all of these very liberal colleges that are not teaching God at all, they started as seminaries. And this is the time period where one by one they fell away. And the Bible wasn't God's literal word, but it was just figurative. It was things that um, were, were good stories for morality. It became something other than God's word. And he has people that are pressuring him and, and calling him foolish for believing it as God's word. He has he has these questions about the Bible that he doesn't know how to answer. And he's struggling. So I'm going to read you a little bit, an excerpt from this book, but it has a lot of what Graham actually says. During this college briefing conference, Graham felt tugged between mirrors, a brilliant woman who trusted the Bible, and Templeton, who chided Graham for failing to catch up with the times and abandon his simplistic interpretation of the Bible. Alone one evening, Graham considered that Jesus himself recognized the Hebrew Scriptures as historical as that night wore on, my heart became heavenly, heavily burdened, Graham remembered. Could I trust the Bible? With the Los Angeles campaign galloping toward me, I had to answer. If I could not trust the Bible, I could not go on. I would have to quit the school presidency. I would have to leave the pulpit evangelism. I was only 30 years of age. It was not too late to become a dairy farmer. But that night I believed with all my heart that the God who saved my soul would never let go of me. Graham walked around the picturesque Forest Hills, Forest Home facilities encircled by the San Bernardino Mountains. He knelt down in the woods and prayed, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for, for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and uh, psychological questions Chuck and others are raising. But Graham didn't end his prayer with earnest confession. He prayed forward for resolution. Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word, by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. And he goes on to preach at these evangelism meetings in L.A. And I don't know if you remember, we talked about um, Frank Zamperini. And I'm not 100% sure, but... He attended one in L.A. Uh, I wonder if these are the same ones or if it was a, a return revival. But at these meetings, revival breaks out. We see all of the things that are necessary for revival taking place. Graham has decided that he is going to be one of the faithful few. Rather than allowing his doubt and excuses and things that he might think in his heart and his desires to take hold and quit the ministry and go be a dairy farmer. 
He's going to believe the Bible to be God's Word. He's going to trust God. And he's going to go and he's going to preach the Word. At the same time, there are also faithful few in L.A. that are preparing churches that are already experiencing and seeking God's movement among them. And so they come together and the Word is proclaimed and people are hungry for God's movement and God shows up. And people are hearing about this and wanting more of it. But it didn't start with the whole nation being excited to hear the gospel. It started with someone deciding that they're going to follow God faithfully, even if it doesn't make sense to them in that moment, and other people seeking God's face. So the question that we have to answer is, will we see revival? Will we see revival? Will you be faithful in seeking Him? Will you trust Him even when it's hard? Will you do His will? Will you continue to do His will when it's hard? Will we receive the results? I believe that we will. I believe that God can do all things. I believe that God can do things in and through this church and in and through our lives that we cannot imagine if we will seek Him, if we will be faithful. And I know this because in my life I have experienced revival. I've seen Him do it before. There have been times in my ministry, not very long after I started ministry, I've been in ministry 10 years, and before I came here I had some times that were difficult. And it wasn't just, is this the right place to serve? Like Billy Graham, I had a moment where I said, it would be a whole lot easier to go do something else be a whole lot easier to go, wouldn't be a dairy farmer, but go do something else. But God reminded me of His promises. He reminded me of what He's called me to. He reminded me of what He has promised to do. And He reminded me that anything and everything I do in this life in pursuit of that goal is worth it. It's better than any other pursuit that I, can, that I can go after. It's better than anything I could fill my life with. It's better to seek God and His will than anything else I might face, anything else I might do. And so the challenge we must face together, or the challenge that you have to think about right now is, is that true for you? Are you going to seek God and seek to do His will for the rest of your life as best you're able, or are you going to do what you'd rather do instead? Because those are the only two options. It's not going to look the same for every person. It's not going to look the same for you now as it will in 10 years from now. But the question is the same. Will you seek to serve Him faithfully, or are you going to choose something less than that? Will you put your trust in Him today? And if you haven't done that for the first time, that's what you must do. This Valley of Dry Bones is, is, a rep- is representative of every person who does not know Christ. Dead in their sin. Children, children of wrath because of their wicked ways. But God, because He's rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Do you need salvation this morning? Before you can have revival, God's going to make you alive. Don't let another day go before you make that decision. But if you know him, if you have known him, will you trust him today? Will you seek him today? The altar will be open, and I'll be down here for prayer as well. Will you follow God today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us, this time that we can gather together and we can seek after you, Lord. And I pray that you will be with us. Lord, I pray that you will break our hearts, that you will burden us, that you will help show us who we are, that you will show us our need, our desperate desire, our need for you to move among us. And God, I pray that you will make it very clear where you want us to be individually and as a church. And God, I pray that you'll make it very clear that only by seeking you can that happen. I pray that we would not try to manufacture it, that we wouldn't try to do anything other than be obedient to you and do what you say. And I pray that we would hear what you call us to do today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.